My name is Tom Bedell, and today we're privileged to be joined by Neil Collins, head coach at USL Championship side, the Tampa Bay Rowdies. He's kindly taken some time out of his busy schedule in the postseason to speak to us, or the off-season, I should say, rather. Neil, thank you for joining us on Laptop Gurus today. Firstly, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Tom. It's great to get a chance to speak to you, so thanks for inviting me on. Well, it's our pleasure to have you on, Neil. Firstly, then, I wanted to just take a bit of a, a few steps back and just look at how you ended up in the States. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to remember you. Obviously, a long stint in the UK with some big clubs, Sheffield United, Wolves, Leeds, Sunderland. Uh, they may, however, not be aware that you're coaching in the States now and, and, and uh, the Rowdies. Can you just tell us how you came to finish your playing career uh, in the US firstly and, and, and how you became head coach now? Yeah, of course. Um I mean, I was very fortunate to play for some of the clubs that you mentioned and uh, thoroughly enjoyed, you know, playing in the English Football League. I just think it's some of the best leagues in the world and I still love watching them. But I, I was getting to a point at Sheffield United where I loved playing for Sheffield United and um, I knew I was going to probably take a step away from Sheffield United. And um, we were just discussing before we came on about Florida and what a nice place it is. And um, I've been vacationing and I sound like an American there. Um, I've been coming on holiday for um, 20 years or so uh, to to Florida and particularly Sarasota, Barrington area. And uh, Tampa Bay Rowdies were growing and getting better and kind of got put in touch with someone there and everything just aligned and I thought it was a great opportunity to come out and play uh, the last part of my career somewhere different, experiencing something totally different. And uh, me and my family came and did that. And uh, I was very fortunate to go from playing to straight into straight into the head coach's job, which is in some ways maybe not ideal, but um, these opportunities don't come around all the time. So I grabbed it with both hands and, and two and a half years later, I'm still in the job and thoroughly enjoying it. So um, yeah, that's a little bit of background to how I got here. Well, that's a pretty good testimony if two and a half years later, it's still going well. How did you find that transition from English football? Obviously, uh, you know, growing up and and starting out in in Scotland, playing a large portion of your career in English leagues, as you say, and then moving to the states. And I, I mean that in a kind of as much as on the field and the kind of standard of football and what have you as as the culture. By the sounds of it, maybe not a massive shock if you'd been holidaying in the states as as regularly as you did. Yeah, I think I think first of all, from an on the field point of view. Um, one of the biggest factors, which seems quite obvious, but until you actually experience it, is the environmental factors. I made my first, I made my debut um, in April, and the heat was just phenomenal. And this was in April, um, so I think one thing I've realised as a coach is that the players that you are bringing to play here, especially for our team in in, in Florida, they have to be fit. They have to be able to cope with the heat. And um, that can be difficult even for the first, the first of players. So that was something that um, you had to try the best to adapt to. But in terms of the standard, the standard was good and was improving, and it's improved rap- rapidly over time because American soccer's um, definitely on the up. Maybe slightly slower than people would expect, but it's definitely on the upward curve. You can see that with the players that are coming through in the European leagues now. And then the, the biggest cultural difference is, um, is here there's all, so many sports that people enjoy to watch whereas in the UK I, I think I'm right in saying that 
everyone's lives and breathes football. Um, it dominates all the headlines. It dominates all the TV programs. Everyone is so passionate about it, and I, I am a fan. You know, ultimately, um, of my teams back home and support them. Um, you know, all the time. Whereas here, it's definitely a little bit more laid back. You don't get put under the same amount of pressure. Um, the people are very, very positive, very encouraging. So that 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 takes a little bit more getting used to that when you get beaten two nothing at home, you're not getting um, called every name under the sun, um, and it's it's almost something you miss at times because that passion is what makes the good times so good. Certainly makes the the difficult times um, tough to deal with. But I can't I can't say I've had anything but good experiences since I've been here and um, as a player and as a coach. I think. Uh, Football is just, as I say, improving, improving rapidly. And I think uh, you'll see in the next 10 years, America constantly churn out world-class players. Mm. That's quite interesting then. So as someone who is a fairly young coach and is very much in his first job, sort of learning on the job, as you say, there was you know no transition time. Is, is that quite helpful to you that there aren't, you know, maybe reporters and television crews and radio phone-ins all sort of, you know, hounding you every time there's not a positive result as you might expect um, back home? Yeah, well, I've got I've got friends I've got friends that are in similar roles in the UK at, at clubs that some might not consider them massive clubs, but they're still important clubs, and I can see the the outside influences that they have to deal with and obviously part of the experience is being able to just handle that and ignore it. I don't tend to have the same extent of that. Of course, we've still got very loyal fans, some great fans and fans that care deeply. And if they're not happy, they, they, they will tell you, but just not in the same volume. And I think it does it does definitely help you focus on the, the job at hand. And I think all the pressure really, Tom, comes from myself Um and I think that's the big thing is that the pressure is the same because how you feel after a poor performance or a bad result doesn't change if someone shouts at you. You know, you you take it to heart. You feel about you feel badly about it. So I'm um, ambitious and want to do well for the for the club. You know, for the players, for myself, uh, for the staff. So I put all the pressure on myself. But it, it definitely definitely um, helps at times to not have. You know, ten guys phoning in afterwards to tell you why you made the wrong substitution. Yeah, I bet. Uh, to the present day, then Neil, your role as as head coach. Where does your remit start and where does it end? Because it's obviously you know interpreted differently from club to club. It's, it's hugely different, Tom, isn't it? Now, um, some people are head coaches and they just deal with coaching the team. Some people are more than you know, old school manager that oversee everything I'm, I'm very very fortunate that I work very closely with the president Lee Cohen and um, he gives me like kind of full autonomy um, in terms of the whole structure from a technical standpoint of the football side so I try and um, really have a hand in everything um, we're not we're not a hugely resource club and we are for this level but not in compared to some of the clubs in the UK so I'm able to have a hand in the recruitment, you know, that's that's my jurisdiction. Um, so signing the players, coaching the players, trying to trying to obviously look at um, youth pathways as well, trying to develop that because that's something that we need to do more of. So uh, all the way down to picking what kind of colour or waist strip uh, is I get to have a big say in all these things, which I think's 
maybe um, unusual now, um, and I understand why the big clubs they have sporting directors totally understand that. I think it's fantastic, but I really like um, to be able to have an influence on the things that I think impact the performance of the team. Um, you know, I think that's the way I grew up watching someone like Alex Ferguson do it. Um, and I know it's not going to be as common now, but luckily I'm in a position right now where I get to to make those decisions. Yeah, it certainly sounds like uh, you're, you're very fortunate in that regard because I was going to say, I don't think a lot of those things fall to the, the, the typical manager these days, do they? Um, tell us a little bit then about the, the USL Championship. We've seen, obviously, Major League Soccer take great strides in you know the last decade or so and you know the kind of exports to Europe you know we've seen a few this year and at the end of last year already I'm, I'm sure there's going to be more how does the the USL championship um, compare to to say an English an English league that we know what would be an equ- equivalent and, and how does it kind of close the gap um, to, to English soccer and, and European soccer it's a very good question I think um People ask me all the time about comparing the levels, and I think it's very difficult because what I would I would say is we've got players here that have never experienced playing at an Oldham, a Scunthorpe, a Stoke on a Tuesday night in January, um, and the environmental factors make that game um, a certain way because when it is freezing cold and the pitches are not so good, um, and you're playing. You know, for your livelihoods in terms of playoff, uh, playoffs or relegation or promotion, it just creates a totally different atmosphere and type of game. Equally, those a lot of those players have never played in Florida in mid-July. Um, so I think the environmental factors make it hard because the, the style is different, just like it is in every country. But but what I would what I would say is um, while the MLS has really improved, so has the USL Championship, and. The days of us being able to just recruit any over 30 that's played in the English Football League and expect them to come in and do well, they're, they're long gone. Um, there's a lot of good players in this league and a lot of players that can that are started going to the MLS, they've started playing for their national teams. So um, I think uh, the, there's definitely players in our team that could translate to League One, you know, in the right team, in the right system. And there's definitely players in League One that could come out here and do well. But there's also players, I think, that would struggle, just like there's players from our team that would struggle. So um, it's always a nice discussion to have, but it's, it's very hard because of all the hypotheticals. Um, I think the way this league continues to grow is just consistency. You know, it's still a very, very young league. And I think when you look at the history of British football here, you know, still very much in the infancy. And it is such a big country. So you don't have the the same rivalries, the same traditions, but over time, hopefully that can keep developing. And um, I do think the gap will continue to close. And I think you can see that with the players that are starting to go more regularly from the USL to the MLS. And and then that filters into Europe. So um, it's exciting to see where it can go. And, And the difference I've seen in the past three years has been phenomenal. The standard of teams and players is improving all the time. And I think that becomes with more more better quality people wanting to come and play and work and coach in the league. Yeah, and, and continuing that theme, you're one of several British coaches across the, the East and Western conferences. Why do you think that is that the, there are sort of imports from the UK to uh, the USL Championship and, and beyond as well? well? I'm sure, I mean, I want you to remind you 
Tom, that for a long time Scottish managers have been considered the best. Um, <laughs> Alex, you know Alex Ferguson, Matt Busby, Bill Shankly. You go through in the Premier the Premier League in England's constantly had a stream of Scottish managers, and I think if you look at um, again here here in the USL, you've had these these characters that you know have had the willingness to try something new and leave leave the UK and um, they've obviously brought a certain amount of experience but equally just the type of character traits that um, would allow someone to like change countries and, and take up that kind of role um, it's obviously it's obviously great to see from a colleague point of view you know when you get the chance to play against these guys but I think again it's just um, people like myself that at some point in time have have expanded um you know, we're trying to trying to go abroad, and I think the, the obviously the owners and the people that make these appointments have seen seen certain characteristics, um, and I think it just comes from the upbringing that you have, where football, you know, from such a young age is is, is what you think about and what you gear everything towards. So it's definitely um, definitely a lot of coaches I know that would love the opportunity to coach in the in the USL because you know when you watch it, it's a great league for young coaches for the reasons we earlier discussed and, and again just all the challenges that it brings so it's um, I think you'll see more and more coaches come from all around the world as it, as it becomes um, definitely a, a league that people want to be a part of mm. and, and from a player perspective as well the, the language barrier is obviously or the lack of language barrier is obviously a big factor but do, does it inevitably mean uh, that you end up scouting British and Irish players and looking to bring British and Irish players over, and, and what's the appetite like amongst uh, British and Irish players to come to the states? Yeah, I mean, again, one of the things that we or I certainly wanted to introduce was a real open mind to um, to players. Now, it obviously, helps if they can understand me, which is sometimes difficult for even the people that do speak English. Um, but I think we want to we want to be able to access as many markets as many good players as possible. Of course, with the experience and connections I've gotten in um, the UK, it makes sense to use contacts there to to access that market. And I actually think the the young the young market in the UK, all these players coming out of the academies, it's almost saturated with talent. You see. Um, the amount of good quality players that are out on loan from these clubs and it just filters down and that means there's good players that can't can't get opportunities so we've tried to take advantage of that and I think what's great is that we've had um, a youngest ever player for the club um, 18, 18 year old from Sheffield United um, you know came over and he's been here for the last two years he ended up signing a permanent contract and he's done fantastic he's been a professional from 16 years old Whereas the Americans um, that are coming out of college are 22 and they've never been part of professional football. So I do think it's a market that's um, a good one from a transfer point of view. But as you've seen, as you've seen uh, around the world, you know, there's less, it's becoming harder to find a hidden gem because all the big clubs are in every market around the world. So we look at Argentina, we look at Brazil, we look at all of South America. But again, you're relying on um, contacts, recommendations, because we just don't have the resources to scout all these places. And I'm very lucky I'm able to rely on some people 
in the UK that helped me with that. And, and, and I think by and large, uh, to finish, the players, the players that are looking for an opportunity are very keen to come here, you know, to try something new. Um, I think you generally either have people at the start of their career or at the end of their career that want to come here. The ones in the middle um, that want to come are probably not the right ones. Um, and the ones that are doing really well are doing well, so they don't they they don't see this as a step forward. So, I like personally to try and get the guys at the start of their careers that are looking for that opportunity, and have potential to to really improve. And you're in the off season at the moment. I presume a large chunk of your your day to day at this stage is taken up with uh, matters of recruitment. You're coming off a, a bizarre season. It was it was obviously an oddity for everyone with with the pandemic going on. You should have played Phoenix Rising in the USL Championship game, but the season was cancelled before it got to that stage. Um, just can you give us a little kind of a pricey of last season to pad that out? And, and what are your aims for this season uh, ahead? Yeah, well, I think last season, I mean, Bizarre definitely sums up. Um, having the final cancelled was a real disappointment. But I think if you look at what happened prior to that, been able to play a season... Uh, Managed to play 19 games. You know, we we won our Eastern Conference uh, away to away to Louisville in the Eastern Conference final, which was a huge uh, moment for the club um, to to win that trophy. Uh, disappointing not to fi- finish it, but you know, very successful season on the field. Um, and again, I think everyone felt coming out of lockdown in May June that the opportunity just to play you know, was, was was a great one. So then to capitalise on that uh, was excellent. And now it just allows us to build build on the consistency of, of keeping a lot of those players for next year. And the big thing for me, Tom, and we'll probably discuss it in the next part, is every club wants to win trophies. It's, that's a given. I mean, how are we going to do that? How, how are we going to achieve that? And that's what we're constantly trying to refine and get better at is how we're going to, constantly be successful with our performances on the field and we've improved on the field in the last two years and the focus will be on doing the same again next year can we improve aspects of our performances and if we keep doing that then um, hopefully we'll find ourselves in these uh, big playoff games again Excellent Well we're going to take a very short break and then we'll be back for the second part of today's show and we're going to get a bit deeper into some of what you do day to day and the data and the the kind of statistical analysis that goes hand in hand with soccer these days. Hi, I'm Jamie Carragher and you're listening to Laptop Gurus from 23. Welcome back to Laptop Gurus today. We're privileged to be joined by Neil Collins, head coach of the Tampa Bay Rowdies in the USL Championship. We've caught up with Neil's kind of career to date and, and his time in the States so far. But the reason we wanted to speak to him was to get the, the insight of someone actually working in the game day to day from a data and st- statistics and an analytical point of view as well and just really find out how that works at a professional franchise um neil someone who only as you said in the first part of the show retired very recently and sort of went headlong straight into the coaching side of the game it, it you you are very much recently retired and probably doesn't feel like it i suspect but how does in the short time since you've retired in, in 2018 and, and, and to the present day what is the how is the perception of data and analysis and 
all the kind of things that we see now in, in, t- in terms of breaking down games and performances and what have you. How, how has that changed over the last couple of years? Because I, I kind of get the feeling that there's been a bit of a an explosion of, of kind of data and analysis uh, in soccer in that time frame. Yeah, I, I think it's been ra- I think it's been rapid. I think it's been a rapid change uh, from retiring to now. I think the, the quality of information is getting so much better, and I think uh, the people that are willing to um, accept it and try and understand it are are obviously having some good success. And the ones that are trying to ignore it are probably going to find themselves behind. Um, I've really enjoyed, um, you know, learning more, much more about it. And if you know anything about our owners, the Tampa Bay Rays, they're one of the the best in the business at doing it in the in the baseball world. Um, they've not foisted that upon us at all, but we have we are taking it upon ourselves to constantly look for every improvement we can get and. Um, as the context improves with the with the better quality data and stats available, you know it's it's just getting better and better, and you know um, something that we were really embracing and trying to make the best use of, and, and just learn. I think that's the biggest thing for me is always willing to ask questions of people that I think know better and try and get um, people's take on how how we can make better use of it, and um, yeah, it's something that I, I think. Again, if you're not open to it, you'll pretty quickly need to be open to it, or you won't you won't find yourself in the game because um, you you know there's so many examples that, that you'll be well aware of, and I think uh, one of the biggest ones is Liverpool and and how they've how made use of certain things. So what happens is people always copy, and that's the sincerest form of flattery. So um, I think if you're not doing that, then again, more more fool you. No, absolutely right. As a player, were you someone who was particularly keen to kind of dig into his stats, you know, whatever whatever was available at that time, get video clips and, and so on? Or, or were you kind of less inquisitive along those lines, if that makes sense? And, and, and did the coaches and managers that you played under kind of buy into it or were they kind of, uh, you know, reluctant to get into that world? I'm not going to be too... Um... You know, negative on any of the past coaches purely on the basis that I think things will just have changed a lot since then, and and I think um, I mean the likes of uh, when I've been at clubs like when I was at Sunderland, Wolves, Preston, always got access to my clips, always watched them, uh, generally on my own. Um, Mick McCarthy would um, would take times to to go through them with you. Um, you know, on a performance kind of basis or the assistant mate, uh, he would obviously use it for the team. Actually, funny enough, I remember um, Mick McCarthy, we were playing Watford, which I think I might say is your team. Um, we played Watford on an FA Cup tie and uh, it was when Eddie Bufford was in charge and I was at time playing between left back and centre back. The Wolves fans won't remember it fondly, but... Um, that game, he showed how much Watford attacked down their right hand side with a with a kind of graphic that would be very common now, but at the time wasn't. And uh, that's why I was going to play left back because he wanted a more defensive and aerial person that was better in the air to play that position. And you know, I look back at that, and that's much more common now. Whereas then it was very uncommon. And um, I've had some managers. I mean, I had one that used to just print out the instat 
sheet for each player and leave it at their desk. And I used to think that was pretty pointless on the basis of what each player will take that the way they want to take it. So if a player is a midfielder and their pass percentage was high, they'll think they had a great game. Uh, someone might look at it negatively. I think everything has to be with context. Everything has to be with context. And context, not just um, that player, but within the team and how the team wants to play. And um, I didn't really play for a team that really utilised that. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that was necessarily down to anyone doing anything wrong. I just think um, there was very few teams in football that were ahead of the game. You know, I think I think Brentford started using it just as I was coming to the end of playing against them and you could see them really starting to to get better and improve and recruit better players and, and play with a better style on the back of some of the information they were obviously getting access to. But uh, I didn't unfortunately have that benefit as a player. And I would I would have I would have loved I would have loved that. Um I really do think it, it can it can really benefit not just a team, but certainly individual players. Yeah, you did very well not to mention the score in that particular game, Neil. I'm pretty sure you, the Wolves walloped us that oh, day. I remember. Oh, good. Yes, four four one. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I will mention it now. But, <laughs> I think, and again, I think I'm right in saying Watford. Did we beat you then the following week in the league game and Steve Cabber scored his only Watford goal possibly? I don't expect you to know that. Tom, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right, but you're forgetting the most important piece of that was I was actually injured for the following week's game and that's probably well, why. That, that, exp- that explains <laughs> the swing, doesn't it? <laughs> Vic McCarthy, it does. he's got his research, he's done his, he's done his work and he's got it absolutely <laughs> spot on by the sounds of it. Um, uh, if you compare then the start of your career playing, uh, starting out at Queen's Park to the, the, the very end of it, uh, finishing up in the States, how much more was available and, and how much more demanding could you be of, I guess, the fact that there were probably staff dedicated to analysis at that stage and, you know, analysts that that was their day in, day out job, which I'm assuming wasn't the case in the the early part of the 2000s or, or, or was it? No, I mean, I think again, you re- recognise at Queen's Park, I think we were actually lucky that we had our games videoed, which was pretty good at that level at that time. So I do remember now and again, as a team being sat in front of the video, but definitely even at Sunderland, I go back, I've still got the, the DVDs of clips from games and um, it was very much, it was very much all at that stage, same at Wolves, even heading into Preston, I think we might have started to get a little bit more detail. Alan Irvin, Alan Irvin, who's the assistant at West Ham, was definitely um, into his analysis. He, he liked a lot. He went into very um, much depth on the opposition before games. Um, a lot of aspects. He, he certainly made use of that. But, I mean, I, I had Mikey Allen, who's still at Sheffield United, who was very good. As a as a kind of analysis and data guy who would work behind the scenes and he would help whether it be opposition, our own team recruitment, um, and at Sunderland even in the early two thousands, um, I can't remember the guy's first name, Bods, and I think he might still be there as well. Was really good, you know, being able to get access to things and um, give you feedback. But again, it's definitely improved. But I think now. I think now it's, it's really starting to take off and I think the modern day players and the academies are starting to get that information so now when they get into first teams they want it they want they want that information there. And, I, and again as a coach you're constantly trying to work out how these players learn best you know do they learn from just watching their own clips or do they need to see graphics or 
you know, what is it they need to be able to, to improve? So, again, um, the, the improvements have been slow, I think, during my career. Um, they never changed drastically. But I think now, as we said, the last two or three years, drastic changes and advances have been made. Yeah. How much then, and I, I, you know, don't want you to kind of spill all your worldly secrets and what have you, and give potentially give opponents an edge. But how much do data, does data and, and analytical tools uh, have to play for, for you as a coach, for kind of your your staff, I guess your front office? Is it is it restricted to kind of recruitment and and coaching or or, or coaching, or is it used kind of across the? across the spectrum and, you know, any opportunity that you can kind of help, uh, you know, what you're doing day to day, setting up sessions, whatever it may be, are you trying to incorporate those sort of tools? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, as you'll imagine, as a young coach, you have ideas and you have a vision and you have um, plans and then you're constantly looking at uh, reflecting on those plans and trying to improve them. And I think that's, exactly what we're trying to do with our use of data. I think, um, for, for example, you start with the, the GPS. You know, the GPS is the physical data and we've got a performance coach that's fantastic in periodizing our training and we're trying to constantly get better information about. And again, it's all, it's all relative to how we want to play and what we're trying to achieve in terms of our style of play. So what what are the expectations for a wing back in our system in terms of sprints and um, distance covered and we're constantly trying to gather information and in two years may seem like a lot but it's actually not it's not that you know bigger volume of, of knowledge for a young coach so that's constantly that's why I think we can constantly get better than that opposition scouting we've actually had we've, we've hired um, interns to do um, remote opposition data analysis um, the last two years and that's been really helpful because I think what happens is it sometimes kind of confirms and cements what we've seen from our own scouting um, it might time to time bring up something that we hadn't originally seen that we can then go back and double check and then um, there's, a, there's occasions as well where it brings up something and prevent, presents information to the team in a way that I think they will understands things even better you know for example if you've got a player in the other opposing team that plays 60% of their forward passes they can then understand why we're going to try and make sure we put them under a lot of pressure you know or we're going to stop you know balls into them and I think players nowadays are much more understanding when you're giving them the why to doing things as opposed to just telling them so we use that um, for recruitment it's, it's a little bit more difficult. We've tried a couple of different avenues and we're constantly trying to improve how we recruit players. We um, hired a company called Market Insights. They have some great guys working for them back in the UK to help us and they, they did a good job. Um, but one thing, a lot of the players that we do get sent are players that don't have a great wealth of data behind them. So you're talking about players coming out of college and you're, you're talking about players coming out of U23 football, you're talking about players um, that are coming from, you know, random places around the world that don't have that footage available. So it comes down to just using contacts, using your eye. And I do think, again, Tom, you go back to some basic things like how many appearances has someone made in the last three seasons? Are they available? Are they fit? Um, 
and then you obviously we're trying to build out exactly what we're looking for in certain positions and one of the one of the biggest things or one of the toughest things I should say is you know we have a way of playing that suits us if, if, if we're trying to sign a a right winger that's that we think could be a great right wing back sometimes he's his stats might not be um, as positive because of that. And we're trying to work out. So we're constantly trying to learn, but we definitely try and make use of it in as many uh, situations as we possibly can and just develop it and refine it so that we can get as much value out as possible. From what you say there, and you mentioned earlier, obviously, you know, you've got to, you've got to rely on, or not rely, but you, you have a lot of friends in, in football who can help you in terms of the recruitment side, is there a lot of watching kind of videos and what have you? I'm thinking, given the travel kind of restrictions and what have you, and the, the size of the country, is there a lot of watching videos and potential clips of players involved in your job uh, from a recruitment side? Yeah, again, because of the exactly the travel, the travels makes it impossible to get to, to watch people um, in person. Um, so we spend a lot of time on the video. And again, it's not the ideal way to recruit people, but it's just part of the, it. Should just be part of many ways. We have to put a bit more emphasis on it being in America. Um, so again, what you're trying to do is watch as much as possible and as many different scenarios as possible, and and wade through all that and use all the staff to do that and take the data that you do have available and see where that's applicable. Um, and then you're looking at and the one thing why obviously coaches are still important is that then you've got to find out about character and personality and all the all the intangibles that you know and, and, and that's a, one of the biggest and toughest things is is having a feel is putting the data together with a feel for yeah the player is the player at a crossroads is the player you know still hungry is the player still motivated are they coming to Tampa because they want to go to Disneyland or are they coming to Tampa because they want to they want to progress their career and they're hungry to win and they're hungry to improve. Um, and that's where I've obviously got to try and then make a decision on that, um, which can sometimes be difficult in video. So you need to try and pull in everything you can to, to then get to a final decision. As an outsider looking in, someone who you know very loosely follows the NFL, but kind of interested in, in sports data anyway, I always think of the the US as being far earlier adopters of data and analysis tools than than we've been in sport in this country. Is is that in your experience kind of accurate? Or is it kind of the norm that this is this plays an important part in 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 soccer in the states? And 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 how do players in the states how receptive are they to to being given data on their performances and training and, and, and so on and so forth yeah so I think I think you're right in the first part US sports is obviously light years ahead in terms of the data and analysis tools I'm not sure it's in, in football uh, I think it's definitely been in other sports and uh, just like football elsewhere in the world I think football's been a little bit behind but in some ways, maybe behind because it's at times a difficult, more difficult sport to to, to analyse um, in comparison to maybe like a baseball. Um, but they are the players are unbelievably receptive. That's one of the things with the American players. Their attitude's phenomenal. You know, a lot of these guys are educated guys. They've come out of college. Um, they've had a certain experience there, where they've got the access to some of the best facilities in the world. 
Um, so they come out and, and these guys are very, very receptive to information that's going to help them improve. They've kind of got that growth mindset. So for a young coach who, who's really open and trying to find different ways of, of improving a team and improving individuals, we're very fortunate that we don't have guys that say, oh, this is, this is not the way I used to do it. They're all very open-minded people. So it definitely is good from my point of view being able to, to try and test these type of things. No, absolutely right. Last couple of things then, Neil, before we let you get back to the real business of your day-to-day job. This this podcast takes its name from a piece that was in the Daily Mail a few years ago poking fun at Fenway Sports Group and Liverpool for their uh, so-called laptop gurus and air-conditioned offices. And that, that's still online if anyone wants to to find it's not not aged particularly well and obviously interesting that you actually reference Liverpool and the fact that you know they are kind of one of the leaders I think in the Premier League in this respect what sort of setup does do the Tampa Bay Rowdies have as a USL club in terms of kind of staffing for analysis and staffing for recruitment and so on you obviously mentioned that you are you know very much across that yourself but do you have kind of a team dedicated to those 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 roles or is that kind of pie in the sky for a club of, of your size? Yeah, unfortunately, it's pie in the sky right now, especially coming off of um, the you know 2020 and everything that happened. Um, but it's something that we're very mindful of and we're trying to make the best, you know, trying to take every advantage we can with the staff we've got. We've got... You know, myself, I've got two assist, three assistant coaches. Um, last year we had a, a chief, a kind of chief scout who um, who works deeply in the American game, who's involved in seeing a lot of college players because he, um, he coaches a team where all the college players come through, um, host his own combine. So that was definitely done with the basis of trying to be able to get much more information on these players. And he... He put a lot of data stuff together for us, but been able to keep that position has been tough. Um, so a lot, a lot of it comes down to really, to be honest, on we have had, as I say, we've had opposition scouts, remote opposition scouts, um, and we'll, we'll look to do that again next year. Um, but in terms of being able to actually have paid and paid staff, we're just not in the position to do that. So we're constantly trying to see what we can offer people in terms of the experience in terms of the, um, adding it to their CV um, and people that are willing to, to take that opportunity. So, we're, as I say, we're trying to make the best of it and, and use. And me and my staff are trying to learn. But unfortunately, we don't have certainly what Liverpool and some of these clubs have had access to. But I do still think we are ahead of other teams at our level because we've been on courses. We've been on courses that are available to try and learn more. Um, I've been... Fortunate to do a couple of the stats bomb courses online, which have I've really enjoyed. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, we're as I say, we're very open minded, and I know my bosses are very open minded at looking at ways of of trying to maximise that. But, but unfortunately, um, there's many clubs right now we're going through a tough time, you know, financially, and um, we have to we have to try and make best with what we have. And just finally then, Neil, what's the future for, for data and statistical analysis and so on in, in soccer? And, and in what by I mean by that is what do you hope to see or, or what can the can, can soccer take from other sports, particularly in the US? How, how is the field going to evolve? How do you hope it will 
continue to evolve? Well, I think first of all, I look at I look at it from from my club and my team's point of view, and um, I said it earlier. I'm very excited because we're at a point now where we're starting to be able to analyse our performance with really good, like you know, key performance indicators. You know, I think um, the day I've just been driven by short-term results um, for for really the best clubs that will be that will be over. They'll know they'll know how to analyse over periods of time how the team's performing and how that translates to to wins because obviously we do need to win, but we we, we want to do it a certain way. So I'm really excited about how we as a club can constantly um, develop and evolve that so players in each position know the the things that they can judge themselves against you know uh, a bit more in depth and did we win possession and do we have more shots on goal you know like, you know start getting deeper and and I think that's going to just keep improving uh, across the board I think you see Liverpool you know with the the throw in you know, the throw-in guy and then you've got Brentford with their recruitment. Um, I think if we all just keep trying to learn from people that, that do well, because that's effectively what a big part of coaching and big part of life is, isn't it? You learn from the people that do well and the people that can take that little bit and implement it in their own way. That's that's the key, a big key to success. So I think um, there's not one specific thing, but I certainly just look at, at my club and just hope that if we can keep refining how we want to do things within our level and keep improving it. Um, that will be very exciting. I think last year we made a big strides in terms of we went from being very average at set pieces to, to being the best in the league on both sides of the ball. Um, and that was partly through you know, partly through data and implementing implementing that and looking closer at that. So um, I think I think just by getting every edge out of all these aspects can, can make quite a big difference. No, absolutely right. Neil, that was genuinely fascinating. Thank you ever so much for giving up your time to join us on today's edition of Laptop Gurus. If you aren't already following Neil on Twitter, do give him a follow. He's, he's a great follow. It's nearly Collins 3 the number. And while you're at it, do follow us as well. It's at 23thenumbersport. Ensure that you never miss an episode of the podcast by subscribing via Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out more about 23 and what we do, give us an, drop us an email at info at 23.sport. Mm-hmm.